Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the podcast from P-Town. Hope everybody's having another good week out there. Uh, our weather has warmed back up here. We actually have been getting a little bit of rain, and um, so it's warmed back up to rain weather instead of snow weather. So hope we still get more snow in the mountains, because like I keep saying and keep saying and keep saying, we need it. And uh, sorry this is coming out a day late. Our next door neighbor uh, got himself a new AR, I think it was, and so it kind of sounded like Ukraine outside the house. And then when that stopped, my son came in and started playing a video game in here where I record, and so it sounded like Ukraine inside the house. So I wasn't able to record last night, but we're back on it again tonight. And so looking at the news, my news correspondent makes it sound official sent me a news report, which I'm not really sure uh, why he sent it to me, but it's news here in Oregon. It says, Senate Bill 1521, which is expected to pass this week, prevents a school board from directing a superintendent to take actions that conflict with state or federal law, including executive orders and Oregon Department of Education policy. And it limits from taking action against a superintendent for following state or federal law. Additionally, the bill would require that a school board has to provide a superintendent at least 12 months notice of termination when firing them without cause and only if certain conditions are met. Interim superintendents are also covered under the bill. The public education system has left parents out of the decision-making process for too long, said Mackenzie Pulliam, co-founder and president of the Oregon Moms Union. Senate Bill 1521 only makes this problem worse by taking school district staffing decisions from local school boards elected by their communities and parents and putting them in the hands of Salem politicians. Several firings of superintendents within the past year are behind the momentum for the bill by lawmakers. In November, Newburgh School District Superintendent Joe Morlock was ousted while his district was entangled in controversy over its school board's ban on political symbols. The Adrian School Board, which is in the state's more rural Malheur County, dismissed Superintendent Kevin Purnell last August for after refusing to follow a board directive defying the state's mask mandate. Purnell had expressed he personally didn't agree with the mandate. Other high-profile pi- firings of Oregon superintendents since the beginning of 2021 include those inside the Greater Albany Public Schools and the Woodburn School District. Annalee Waddell with Oregonians for Liberty and Education questioned the bill's definition of law, which includes any executive order, declaration, directive, or other state or federal authorization, policy, statement, guidance, or regulation. So that's a mouthful. And to be honest, I don't really know how I feel about this bill. Um, the part about it saying uh prevents a board from directing a superintendent to take actions that conflict with state or federal law. I'm not sure if that's pointing out to, because some of the superintendents have said that, I mean, I I think all this kind of centers around COVID personally, but some of the superintendents have said that they don't agree with the mask mandate, so they're not following it, or um, I'm really not exactly sure what this bill um is trying to get through, but I'm assuming that this McKenzie Pulliam, the gal from the Oregon Moms Union or whatever it was, um, saying that it's taken the or left the parents out of the public education system for too long. I think 
what she's trying or maybe what it's saying is that, you know, the state or the uh, public education system, the Oregon public education deal or whatever can pass laws and then all the school districts have to abide by these laws and the school boards can no longer make decisions on certain things that they want to follow or telling their superintendent to follow. It's really, I don't know, it seems really kind of vague. So anyhow, that was about the only major news story that I got. Um, in other news, of course, everybody is looking at Ukraine right now. And uh, that's an interesting uh, situation over there. I mean, I definitely think that Putin should be uh, captured and have to face trial for war crimes because he's killing a lot of uh, just civilians over there. Of course, the civilians are taking up arms and helping to protect their country. Even their president, he came out with that message when we told him there we could help get him out of Ukraine. He says, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. So that's encouraging to hear that, you know, him being a politician, he's stepping up for his country and wanting to take a stand. And I think like it the thing's been going around i think we should all stand with ukraine and uh you know putting put putin back in his place or whatever i don't agree with what's going on over there or what he's trying to do i hope that the u.s or all the sanctions that countries are putting out against them um crumbles moscow and russia and they it's not just tough talk that we're actually going to do something about it the fear is always there that i think putin's just crazy enough that he would drop a nuclear bomb somewhere and then um that could bring us into world war three and that would be pretty uh i don't know there's a lot of different ways i think that this could go there's also a lot of reports coming out about this ghost of kiev the air pilot guy I don't think it's true. I've been reading a, quite a bit about it, and I don't actually think that there's really this fantastic air pilot guy. It sounds like a lot of that stuff um, was kind of an urban legend. It would be, I think it's really cool if there actually is that guy out there taking out all these Russian fighters. And then there's those guys on Snake Island that told the Russian destroyer that they can go do you know what with themselves. And originally, the ports came out. Reports came out that the uh, destroyer opened fire on this uh, these guys on that island. But now, I just saw reports the other day that the, actually those guys were they weren't killed, but they were captured, and they're now they're POWs, I think. But it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. And then there was the other report that uh, uh, Putin had sent in like four hundred Chechen assassins to take out the president of ukraine and ukraine intelligence found out about it and actually assassinated all the assassins which i think is pretty cool turn the game around on them but yeah i just uh i think it's i actually think it's really admirable and great how this the civilians are taking to the streets and helping the military to fight back because with i'd seen a report and the military is definitely outmanned and outgunned but they're kind of holding their own and as bad as it seems, I kind of hope another country kind of steps in and helps them. Uh, that Poland has been sending uh, ammunition and things like that to them, I think. 
Finland is trying to join NATO now, and Russia said that if they join NATO, then Russia's going to turn on them. And Finland said, bring it on. We don't care. We've got one of the best armies in all of Europe. So Russia, they keep running their mouth, and they're going to end up fighting battles on every side. So enough about that. Last thing I was going to talk about was there was a cargo ship that uh, caught on fire off the coast of Portugal or something like that. And it just, they so the ship caught on fire. They managed... They managed to get all the crew members off of the ship and just basically kind of let it burn. And then I just saw a report yesterday that the ship has finally sunk. Um, there were some pretty high seas and it sunk. But this ship was a transport ship and it's, they said it had about 4,000 cars on board. And these cars included like Lamborghinis and Porsches. And they said it was basically all cars loaded like from the Volkswagen factory or something like that. And I think they said something about Volkswagen's insurance is going to have to pay somewhere around, I think it was $155 million or something like that to replace all of these cars that were on board. But think about that, 4,000 vehicles uh, all now sitting at the bottom of the ocean. That's, that's a lot of vehicles. Other than that, getting in back into what we uh, actually come here to talk about, we're going to be talking about Berlin and this is basically the division of East and West Berlin and so you know this uh kind of actually a timely time to come out with this podcast with everything going on in the Ukraine right now but anyhow a little history about this so after Germany after they gave their unconditional surrender at the end of World World War II there was the Potsdam Conference and here it was decided that Germany was going to be divided up into four military occup- occupational zones. And these zones would be broken up between the allied countries. So France was going to take over the southwest. The UK was in the northwest. The United States in the south and the Soviet Union in the east. And so this whole group was denoted as Germany as a whole. Um, or this is when they actually started calling it Germany. Before then it was be- being called the German Reich. But there was some other area farther east that was also it was being handled by Poland and the Soviet Union, but that was only just for a short time. Uh, I know we had pretty good ties with the Soviets at the time, but they seemed that uh, they've had their communist issues and whatnot in the past, and I think it was pretty well known that they were wanting more land. So um, this kind of worked out pretty well for them. And secondly, I'm not exactly sure why the U.S. wanted to be involved in this occupational zone anyhow. Um, I know that we actually stepped in and basically won the war for everybody and saved everyone. But this thing was, this was going on like halfway around the world. So let Belgium or Spain or somebody else take over the area that we were going to take over. But anyhow, after the fall of the German Reich, they reset Germany's borders to the original borders that they had basically before the beginning of World War II. So, as everybody knows, uh, all the land that Germany had conquered, they'd taken over quite a bit of countries, but that land was all given back to the countries that were there originally. So then the Soviet Union, they began dismantling the eastern part of Germany, basically all the industrialized portion of the area uh, that they had control over. So... 
they were having problems in their own economic rebuilding after the war, and maybe they thought that this would end up moving more jobs to the Soviet Union. And Stalin, he was basically wanting $20 billion paid in reparations, but he quickly found out that this wasn't going to happen, so he started extracting his reparations at a heavy cost to the East Germans. And this was kind of the spark that was igniting the split. So finding out that he wasn't going to get this $20 billion or whatever, um, he was going to start making the Germans basically pay that with industry and that type of things is kind of what I took out of it. But anyhow, the three countries that were running Western Germany, they were facing economic hardships there as well. But then in 1948, the Germans got added to the Marshall Plan and the three countries, they came together and created a new currency um, known, and that's known as the Deutschmark. The Soviets didn't agree to this currency reform and they removed themselves from the four governing bodies alliance. So this is when, you know, I think the tension started to uh, rise pretty good between us and the Soviets. And just as a side note, going back to what I was saying before, there were lots of reports that seemed like coming out even towards the end of World War II that, you know, the German or the Russians, the Soviet Union, they were trying to just go for a land grab, basically. They were wanting to get as much land as they could. And it didn't seem like it took too long after World War II that the Soviet Union, who were our allies there, kind of turned to communism and whatnot. And then, obviously, the whole Cold War that's we're kind of talking about in this episode. But anyhow, once uh, the Soviet Union removed, their bo- uh, removed from the alliance, this is when they created the Berlin Blockade, which basically was blocking all the routes of West Germany into Western Berlin. And so the Allies ended up starting supplying uh, Berlin with the airlifts. And so the, I mean, this could have actually kind of turned into a, a continuance of the war, it seems like. So we started airlifting supplies into them and whatnot. And so by 1952, Stalin was pushing the idea of German reunification and superpower removal from Central Europe, which this here, this is my opinion on it, but I think, kind of like I've been saying, he kind of had an ulterior motive on this deal uh, by wanting to get a German reunification. He was thinking... Uh, my theory is is that he was thinking if he could get all the other big countries out of there, then he could basically go in and take over all of Germany. Like, and like I said, that's my opinion. I'm not sure if that's what was he was actually trying. But irregardless of that, the other three nations refused the, re, the German reunification thing that he was talking about. And this is when the split basically became official. Basically, at the point the country was separated into West Germany and East Germany, and Berlin was split down the middle, which also caused a rift because the West Germans were still getting stuff from the Marshall Plan and whatnot, and the East Germans got occupied by the Soviets, and then they allied with them in 1955. So, talking about Berlin, this is where the Allied Control Council was seated, And this council was to govern all of Germany until the peace settlement was done. And it didn't last too long. As soon as 1948, the Soviet Union refused to cooperate with the Western Allies in this. They also refused to participate in the joint administration of Berlin. And they pushed the elected officials out of their seats of power in the Soviet-controlled area. 
And then they put in their own pro-communist leaders and created a communist regime in East Berlin. And now West Berlin was actually inside East Germany by about 110 miles, which is how the Soviet, that whole blockade thing, that's kind of how they were able to blockade it. Um, and if there were any other town, the Western Allies, you know, they may have just been giving it up. But since it was basically our headquarters there, we needed to try to hang on to it, you know, since all the, the, uh, the control councils and whatnot were there, we needed to be able to hang on to it. And the Western Allies basically told the people in West Berlin to play nice with West Germany, which must have been hard, you know, being that far into Eastern Germany. But they did hold non-voting seats in Parliament. Um, I think this was also another play. They let them be in the Parliament, but maybe, you know, they were kind of unsure as to where their loyalties were, so they didn't get voting seats. They were kind of afraid that being that far into Eastern Germany, they may have sympathized more with the East uh, Germans and the Soviets than they would. So they were kind of involved, but not really. Uh, in West Berlin, there were fairs, and the economy was starting to grow, and people's morale was coming back up and whatnot. And I think you can look in, back and see pictures on the internet of the differences between East Berlin and West Berlin. It's kind of amazing what a wall will do. It looks like two totally different... I mean, there's no comparison between the two sides, it doesn't seem like. So there was already a border between East and West Germany, um, but I think it was like our border with Mexico. People were streaming across it. You know, a lot of people were leaving East Germany at the time for the West. And so on August 13th of 1961, the East Germans started to construct a wall, um, although telephone transcripts seem to say that the construction of the wall was actually introduced by Nikita Khrushchev, not by the Germans. And it was also spurred on when JFK made the error of saying that the U.S. wouldn't actively oppose the building of a barrier. But after the construction of the wall, the people in West Berlin were mad at the U.S. for not getting involved and in allowing them to build the wall. But this basically made West Berlin an enclave for the, West, uh, the Western society or whatever in communist territory. And as we all know, the wall kind of became the icon of the Cold War. And the wall, it couldn't go up overnight, obviously, so that's why they, uh, they end up positioning guards at certain areas with orders to shoot anybody who tried to defect. So anybody that was trying, now, when they were building this wall, anybody that was trying to defect from East Germany to West Germany was going to end up getting shot. And talking about the wall a little bit, there were observation towers, uh, dog runs, barbed wire. They made it pretty clear that they didn't want people leaving to West Berlin. And they did. They really didn't want the people from West Berlin coming over either. Which it doesn't. After looking at the pictures, it doesn't seem like many of them would want to anyhow. But the other thing with it, though, they would also allow day trips, or people could apply for visas to visit. They would just have to enter and exit through these checkpoints that they had in the wall, which is kind of um, interesting too. I mean, somebody could get a visa and then go over to West Berlin. And then I don't know if they could claim political immunity or something like that, but it seemed to work for a while. But and during the years of the wall, there were around five thousand defectors that ended up making it out. Uh, the number that didn't is pretty largely disputed, but the amount of people that tried to get out that didn't make it were ranged from the lowest number I saw was ninety-eight to well, uh, there was over two hundred people one report said, that were killed trying to get out. 
And there are various ways that uh, people tried to get out. Some people were able to jump the barbed wire. Uh, one of the earliest deaths actually came from a woman who jumped from a third-story apartment. And I think she broke her leg and ended up dying when she tried that. One guy, he even stole an armored personnel carrier and he rammed the wall with it. He was then fired upon by East German troops who were then fired on by a West German policeman. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, there were a lot of attempts with tunnels. Uh, some people actually made hot air balloons. Uh, they made ultralights. And then one guy, he ran a sports car through one of the checkpoints. So to stop this from happening again, they put up steel barriers at the checkpoints to keep that from happening anymore. But with all this going on year after year after year, the Soviet Union was starting to lose their grip on the Eastern Bloc countries. And then we all heard Reagan's words when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And then the wall finally did come down in 1989. And that's kind of all I have for that one. I know it kind of dove more into the wall and the Soviets and stuff than it did actually about just Berlin. But um, there's not a whole lot to talk about if you don't talk about that type of stuff. I guess we could talk about warm beer and sausage or something like that. But that's pretty much that I have uh, all I have for the Berlin part of the song. And I know I keep asking and asking and asking, but, uh, you know, send me some messages. Send me some news from wherever you're listening from. It'd be kind of interesting to see what's going on in some other areas. The U.S. news stations seem to just focus only on U.S. type of stuff. And I know we have listeners from other countries. Somebody message me from Ukraine. Let me know how you guys are hanging in over there and know that we're all praying for you. And we're uh, hoping that, um, you know, you guys will get some help here before too long and uh go out there like i've said before give me a five-star rating on uh apple podcasts or other podcasters talk about ratings on spotify i actually most of the stuff that i listen to is on spotify but i haven't i don't know exactly how to rate and review on there but if you know how rate and review it there too anything you can do uh helps us out I'm trying to stay ahead uh, in the research department, but um, I've only got researched out ahead a couple of episodes, so I need to try focusing on getting some more of that done. But you get so many hobbies going on at one time and uh, then tied in with work stuff and family life and all that other type of stuff. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to find time to research, but I'm uh, drilling in and hopefully... uh, putting out some information that you guys like that you may not hear other places so uh, another thing everybody can do is go out there and post the links of the podcast on their own facebook page or instagram or something like that maybe get some people from your circles that uh listening to it and uh let's see if we can boost this thing up a little bit and so you can go out there and follow me on the podcast from p-town facebook page or you can follow me on p-town podcast on instagram or you can send me a gmail at p-town podcast 74 at gmail.com that's it for this one we will see you on the next one thanks a lot